0: The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy trends, innovations, and debates. Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guests on Off the Shelf are John Etherton of Etherton & Associates and Tom Sisty, who is Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP. And today we're going to get our, you know, regular legislative update. And there's been a lot going on on the Hill with the NDAAs. Um, and, a lot, and I guess maybe not as much as other years, but there are some significant uh, acquisition policy related uh, provisions in the ver- in the two ndas um and there's nobody better folks to have than tom and john to talk about these things so john i'm going to turn over you and you okay. can give us the big picture right now
1: thanks roger it's great to be here again um the big picture is that we're on a little bit more of a if, there, if i could use such a word a normal uh legislative track this year uh the president and the administration sent the budget request over in february Uh, which gave the appropriations committees the opportunity to start doing their reviews. Uh, The defense authorization bill uh, process has been moving along pretty much on schedule this year, really for the first time in a couple of years. Um, On the appropriations side, uh, the uh, Senate committee has already put out its markup schedule for the 12 appropriations bills, and today, or this last week, they've actually uh, started in full committee Marking up a couple of them, and they hope to have everything done by the end of June. And the House, similarly, is working, the House committee is similarly working on a parallel schedule. And I think it's quite likely that we will have seen most of the or all of the House uh, appropriations bills on and off the floor by the end of uh, uh, July, beginning of the August recess time. And the Senate will wait and see, but they, at least I think, from the committee's perspective, will be prepared to bring the bills up and, and to start engaging. Um, remind people that we have not seen an actual appropriations bill uh, on the Senate side actually taken up on the floor since uh, 2009. So it's about time that we started regular order again and and allowed for that to take place. Uh, At some point, these things may be grouped together a little bit, but I think uh, uh, we'll see. And now the Senate uh, is just discussing seriously about uh, either cutting the recess out entirely in August or at least curtailing part of it. Uh, so that we may see some time in August that it would be available at least to the Senate to take the issues up. So on the uh, authorization defense authorization side, and I would remind the, the listeners before you get on that, yes, so ahead.
0: just I just it's sort mm-hmm. of I guess it's a good news story in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. There was a rare these days in terms of sort of back to regular order. What do you attribute that to? Is it is it because we reached a, budget, a quote, two-year budget deal? That that, that's
1: it? the main, I think that's the main contributor. But I also, what I see, frankly, is a certain will on the part of uh, folks uh, in leadership to, s- to try to see if we can do this. The president was very adamant that when he signed the omnibus uh, a couple months ago that he would not sign another one, a bill like that, that came as one big package with things loaded up. And the only way that you can have an alternative process is with some degree of regular order, in my view. Okay.
2: And I think you also saw that manifested down the line through even uh, working with the staffs. You saw that the um, they produced a discussions raft uh, in the House. They started vetting that with uh, stakeholders uh, on the authorization side. Right. Um, used it as a sounding board to get uh, good feedback and adjust their bill as they move forward. So,
0: yeah, and on the authorization side. Right. So let's yeah. Yeah, you know, Tom got ahead of us a little bit yeah, there, that's, but that's okay. That's, okay. So. that's fine. No, um,
1: it, it's it's good. It's sort of a set of core issues. I think yeah. the on the authorization side, um, in the past, there's been you know a delay. We've seen last year, for example. I don't. I think the House and Senate both delayed their markups into June, if I recall correctly. Uh, normally, those things happen in early May. Uh, this year, the uh, House moved right out on schedule. Uh, they've actually had their bill to the floor, gotten it off the floor, yep. a significant number of amendments, but it's done. Uh, the Senate only delayed their markup for a couple weeks, uh, and they finished that up as well. So uh, we're And as Tom pointed out, as far as the acquisition and the policy provisions are concerned, they did continue a past practice, which I personally think is great, where they put a draft bill out for public uh, consumption and comment a few weeks before the markup so that they could get some feedback from uh, different stakeholders before they finalize the language in the markup in early May. So it, it's this, this process is working. I think the real question will be when the Senate is able to take its bill up on the floor, and that's a little bit of a negotiation uh, process, but we could see that as early as June, uh, in which case the conference could begin and they could uh, have the bill finished up uh, perhaps even before the end of the fiscal year, although I think wow. that's probably a little... Little optimistic
0: yeah so Tom just you know that the, the I, I agree with John and I think you agree as well that the the practice of putting out a draft bill for public comment is a it's a very positive thing and a sense you know provides just folks generally to think about the provisions provide some feedback um, you know so what you know and they've been doing this for a while what sort of prompted you know this approach because it is different than I guess what we've seen in the past
2: uh, well, I can't speak to all of the the drivers. I think some of it was the fact that uh, there was an intent to do real reform. Um, when you look at some of the issues that are covered, uh, addressing the management structure, organizational structure, or DOD, those are big, big issues. Um, last Congress, remember, we were talking about electronic commerce. I'm mm-hmm. sure we'll talk yes. about it again today. The These issues are not simple issues. You want to make sure you're getting input. And this is really the only way you can, especially in the normal flow of this uh, authorization and appropriation process. These things happen very, very quickly. You, you, we, we all sit up at night watching the markups till late in the evening. I mean, it's, it's a rigorous process. So you need some kind of channel in to test um, ideas that are really pushing the envelopes to, right. to, to some extent. And yeah, because you don't know what you don't know, right? Potentially, right. right.
0: So, John, let's start talking a little bit about the House NDA. Mm-hmm. Some of the some of the interesting provisions. Yeah,
1: I think that sort of the take back, the talk, walk back to a little bit to this conversation about the draft bill. Yes, uh, it okay. gives you an idea of sort of where the House thinking started. Mm-hmm. And if you looked at that bill, there were a couple of significant pieces to it. One of which was a the um, recommendations. Of the Section 809 panel in their report, Volume 1 of their final report, which came out in January with respect to commercial item acquisition. Um, and that, those recommendations involved sort of splitting the definition of commercial products and commercial services so that they were treated as separate, standalone kinds of issues in the process. But there also was a move, at least as far as the recommendations were concerned, to eliminate the commercially available off the shelf item definition, definition. Mm-hmm. entirely, and simply use the bigger, broader definition that uh, is in Title 41 to cover cover the process. Yeah, so
0: COTS is a, in a certain sense, you could think about it as a subset of commercial item, right? right? It's a more narrow definition. Right, and a,
1: a relatively easy to, to define yes. uh, sec- section, and I think it comports with what most people in the street would consider to be, quote, commercial items, unquote, right? Mm-hmm. So I think uh, it was an easy uh, tool um, to use in cases where in Congress, Cots but, was easy yeah the Cots uh, the idea Cots being definition. yeah the Cots definition. If Congress, if folks wanted to avoid uh, opening up the door for anything that could be de- determined in the very broad definition as a commercial item, they wanted to provide an exemption, but they didn't want it that broad. Mm-hmm. Uh, limiting it to commercially available off the shelf was a fairly straightforward political tool to move policy forward. And mm-hmm. so, in the draft bill, uh, this was. Basically, they took the recommendation simply to eliminate all that and go with the broader definition. They also had a provision in the commercial products definition, which I thought was intriguing, which uh, uh, basically would go beyond measuring product-to-product comparisons for determining whether something was a commercial product. Uh, it, in fact, what it would do is basically look at the process by which the product was created. So in other words, if you had a, a company that had a specification-based business, where they would build something to specifications, and these would all be unique products. Right. Um, something pr- produced through that process, as long as it was the same process available in the general public, would be considered a commercial item.
0: Because uh, that's a commercial practice. It was a commercial right. practice, and
1: right? But that was that was really taking it a, a step further than what the current definition would allow. So all this was in the in the in the draft bill, and I think that, frankly, when they saw the implications of eliminating COTS. Uh, they saw the implications of some of the more, I guess, uh, progressive or whatever you want to call it, recommendations, things that would really push the envelope. They kind of backed away a little bit. And if you if you look at the language that's in the final version that came out of the committee, uh, it, they essentially abandoned most of that and basically just went opted to go with splitting commercial items and, and, or commercial products and services in the definition and picking up that as a conforming change. But the COTS definition and the use of it in the code is still there.
0: Okay, now, Tom, just hold that thought because we do have to take our first break. My guests today are John Etherton, the president of Etherton Associates, and Tom Sisty, Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP. And when we come back, we'll continue our discussion of the House DAA and the commercial item definition and the, and the cots you know, in the draft and, re, and not making it to the final version. You are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guests are John Etherton, president of Etherton Associates, and Tom Sisti, who is the chief legislative counsel for SAP. And Tom, I asked you to hold your thought at the end of the last segment, and I think it was about the COTS definition, um, you know, at one point, you know, being removed in the
2: draft, but then you know, not being removed in the House version. So go yeah, ahead. I, I was just going to say there, there are some practical issues associated with that. Um, you have a number of statutory provisions, as John was alluding to, uh, that plug into that definition. One of them, by the way, is the electronic commerce definition uh, from Section 846 in the last uh, session uh, of last year's NDAA. And the, the importance of that is, there, there was intended to be a scope of products right in e-commerce under the portals, and uh, you take away that definition, what happens? That section grew from its inception. If you remember, it started with a very narrow set of products, moved into IT, but uh, under the uh, no services under the ambit of uh, of COTS, and uh, you pull that definition out, you, you then have a conforming issue, and you probably have that with many, many different. Uh, provisions of the code, right, John? You had some other thoughts. Well, on that?
1: the thing I would say about that is that that change I think is just an example of the value of doing a draft bill because you can put things out and and force public comments. I think a lot of the constituencies that had worked in the practical issues with the commercially available He's op- considered within government and right. outside of outside government. of government and inside well, of yeah. government both that uh, g- really give them give them gave them the chance to then provide inputs to the staff and to the members. Uh, so that they could then take that practical impact and then make adjustments as they went forward. So I think it was really a, a, a good a good process. And I personally think that some of the work that the 809 panel is doing in commercial acquisition, we have round one and volume one. I think there are later volumes. will also look at various aspects of that. So I don't think this conversation is over by any means.
0: Right, and, and it's just an, uh, one final thought on that before we look at some of the other key provisions, uh, I, and I know, Tom, I know, we're going to talk about e-commerce, Tom. Yeah. Good, we'll get there. But uh, the, the so the practical impact of the change of the commercial item definition, adding commercial products and commercial services, it's really—is it fair to say it's really still the same definition that people are used to?
1: I think it's the same definition. One of the impacts that I see is that it will get more attention focused on the commercial services issue, and and how you train people and how you administer. The determinations on commercial services, perhaps the pricing, uh, it, it's sort of taking that from out from underneath the items construct and having a separate standalone definition and, and having that reflected in the code. I think over time, you'll see more attention focused to that. So it may broaden the aperture a little bit for things that might be considered commercial services to be purchased by the federal
0: government. Could you see, Tom, could you see that flow? into the, you know, if it's definitions that way, that's a great point about sort of raising the consciousness of commercial service. Could you see that sort of, you know, flowing into the regulatory guidance down the road, like the FAR or whatever? I mean, you know, some people still criticize the FAR saying it was written for still written around products and it hasn't, hasn't evolved enough for services. Do you think there has a potential to help push that or not?
2: They could, I think it does. I think when any you, anytime you do something like this, you assume Congress makes a change for a reason, and so it's going to prompt the regulators to review and exa- see exactly where they can refine those regulatory provisions. All right. So, and now, John, so now
0: what's so, the next
1: provision? Okay, you so that was one uh, uh, or set of provisions. Um, I'll just mention in passing there was also a recommendation by the Section 809 panel for a more consistent definition of subcontract. relationship to these requirements and I think that is more consequential than people might think because if you are if you have a a, some sort of an agreement that's defined under the laws of subcontract then you have flow down requirements for a lot of government unique requirements and things that are outside of that definition uh, then basically these requirements would not apply and so now the house included language and again it was a section 809 panel recommendation which would exempt from the definition of subcontract uh, those kinds of contracts, which support uh, general and administrative overhead operations in a company, as well as uh, agreements involving commercial products, commercial or commercial commercially available off shelf items, commercial services, uh, things like that, that are in u- commodity contracts or agreements that are used under for multiple supporting multiple contracts. And so, again, we have a little bit of an aperture there where you have probably less prevalence of government unique requirements maybe in the future that'll flow down. So. I- yeah, I have is. to
0: agree with you that that's that's a pretty big deal yes. because I just remember people both in government, lawyers in government, and outside of government. So what is a subcontract? Right. And the definitions in the FAR, you mm-hmm. know, you can look different places; it says different things. There was always, you know, who's a supplier? What's the difference between a supplier and a subcontractor? All that kind of stuff with regard to flow down. And so the and so this is almost in a certain sense, I don't narrowing the definition in a way, right, so that it has r- potentially less regulatory impact on the private sector? Is that I, fair I to say? I think that
1: would be a, a fair characterization, but I also think it's just clarity. Yes. So, so you may have a situation where you have uh, things that in some sort like of… Like janitorial
0: uh, service. Right. That company. may in
1: some cases be considered a subcontract and in other cases not, uh, based on the use of the definitions, whether they're in the code or in the in the FAR or the DFARS. And this way, I think you've got something. You now have a baseline definition that you can then conform things to. And honestly, it will give us a, a, a way to have conversations around that, what should be in what should be out as we go forward.
0: Right. And, Tom, you will see probably, if that goes through, we'll probably see a regulatory uh, implementation of that, right, in the FAR? So no. there's going to be a, lots of opportunities to talk about it? Yes. Absolutely. Okay.
1: So, okay. So and the, the other the other area that I think, um, again, was picked up in the draft bill uh, that I think is also interesting is the uh, e-commerce portal language, uh, Section 846 from last year. Uh, GSA had requested several uh, legislative uh, changes or, or proposals in their first phase one report. Uh, the, the House Armed Services Committee essentially picked up two of them. One was to raise the um, uh, micro-purchase threshold uh, for our, for uh, any of the products flowing through the portal to $25,000 and below, which exempts that those purchases from a number of government requirements like Buy American and, and the small business rules and some other things. Uh, the other one that they also picked up was the language uh, dealing with the Competition and Contracting Act and how those transactions through the e-commerce portals would be treated uh, to give more flexibility to GSA to come back with a definition and an approach which would honor the spirit of full and open competition, but not necessarily a way that they would have to meet all the definitional requirements that currently are in that law.
2: Uh, Tom, thoughts on you know, what you what you see there? Well, I think uh, you saw some of the consternation about this uh, at the uh, coalition's spring conference. Um, because when this was discussed, I mean, it was openly stated, okay, at the $25,000 threshold, there goes NAFTA, there goes Trade Agreements Act, there goes Buy American Act, yeah, but that's but, as
0: versus pre-existing contracts where those things apply, right? Mm-hmm, transactions. Exactly. Okay.
2: But we're going up 150% when we haven't implemented the existing threshold. And the question is, um, what's the justification? What's the value add for the government? We have a recommendation. The recommendation is we want to incentivize people to use this and we want to do things fast. But what are the policy overlays that are implicated here? Those other provisions of law exist for a reason. Do those reasons not exist anymore? Uh, Trade Agreements Act does that not exist anymore? We're seeing, there's, a, we're seeing a lot of conflict out there. If you look at this whole situation like a, like a planetarium sure. ceiling with constellations, there's there is a unifying uh, uh, connection between all of these provisions, and we're trying to see, trying to get it to work and see how this all fits in very hard to uh, to understand restrictions on certain items of supply and then allowing uh, a, a purchasing uh, channel that would um, eliminate uh, the need for compliance at, at a certain so You're level. T- really talking you, – when you use light you're really talking about parallel universes mm. of government contracting, right? Well, all right yes if we want to go with the star trek uh, methodology absolutely, sure we do (laughs) sure
0: (laughs) absolutely you've you know different timelines all that good (laughs) stuff right so um and and it's and when you when you stop and think we only got about 30 seconds left in this segment so just real quickly the policy implications or what the statement about what's important or
2: not important um, really hasn't been fully vetted yet, has it? That uh, no, and that's the, the issue. Um, y- y- the recommendation's out there. It's been picked up in and, and one of the bills, but we really don't have the policy rationale for it yet. Right. So, and I think GSA is going to have a
0: industry day on the... 21st on, of on June. No, 21st of June. Thank you, Tom, um, to talk about the next, you know, the next, Iteration and what should or shouldn't apply, and all that good stuff, and get some industry feedback on their current ideas and their current plan. So,
2: yes, Tom, but quick. that's but that's the point. If if you're still in the solicitation of feedback phase, maybe you should pull back on the recommendation. Maybe it's premature.
0: Right. Thanks. My, uh, and we're going to take our break right now, and when we come back, we'll continue our discussion on the on the policy provisions in the House NDA. At some point, we have to switch maybe a little bit to what's going on in the Senate side. We've got to get equal time, right, Tom? Yes. So uh, my guests today are John Etherton, President of Etherton & Associates, and Tom Siste, who's Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP. And you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guests are John Etherton, President of Etherton & Associates, and Tom Sisti, Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP, and we're talking about uh, the uh, uh, acquisition policy, sort of provisions, recommendations, thoughts coming out of Congress in the House NDAA and a little, and a little bit in the Senate NDAA as well. Um, last segment, we were we were finishing up talking about the e-commerce platform, and I have sort of two follow-up questions, um, Tom. And, and number one, I think one of the things or the questions about the Increase in the micro purchase threshold. It is as John rightly pointed out, it waives a bunch of different provisions for those transactions, as versus a pre-existing contract that you know where those compliance like BAA or trade agreements act do apply. I think one of the things that stakeholders are scratching their heads about a little bit is they don't really talk about. They just want to raise the MPT without really explaining in the report what laws are waived and why they're choosing
2: to weigh them. Is that, a, is well, that I think what you're that's hearing right. out there? I think that's right. If, if you have to look at what plugs into the MPT and then say, okay, trade agreement set. You want to waive this? Why? Um, By American. You want to waive this? Why? I think that's really what we're talking about is not opposition to to elevating it necessarily, but elevate it as, a, as a, the output of a rational decision-making process. Right, you can't make a... Really good rational, to your point,
0: a rational decision unless you get all the information necessary, or that you think is necessary, or help you make an informed decision. Right. And it really, ha- there hasn't ta- that hasn't really taken
2: place. Well, yet. that's going to take place in June. All right, we're supposed to have another industry day, and then we're going to have comments filed and everything else. Well, you know, you're flying and building the plane at the same time in a way. Yeah, and and John, you know the 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 last thing on the
0: on the e-commerce platform is. This idea that, G, that GSA in a is going to be providing a definition for well, competition? Yeah, competi- how, is that, how is this going to well, work
1: out? Well, it really isn't a definition. It's new procedures. Okay. Uh, it basically gives them the authority. Those procedures
0: could define what competition is, though, right? At least, I mean, an, today, at least in the from case. From a practical of, yeah,
1: perspective. Yeah, from the e-commerce portal perspective. But what it does is it basically allows them to begin using these new procedures, whatever they might be, uh, if, the, if they meet, a, meet certain standards and also if they have provided to Congress prior to actually starting down the road and using these standards at least 30 days before they do to give them a report exactly what they're doing and why. Mm-hmm. So, so it is a grant of authority, but there is a condition on it that they have to provide a report to Congress.
0: And, you know, stop and think about I'm putting my lawyer's hat on for a second. Competition is defined and what impacts competition in many ways are many different things. That includes wa- waiving different requirements. Mm-hmm. So you know competition, you know, and uh, a or what's eligible to be purchased in a uh, so is comp- potentially competitive under one scenario could be more expansive than ye uh, than under another scenario. That COTS definition is a good example. That's more narrow than the commercial item definition. Right. So the scope of the competition, just in the same way, trade agreements act application or buy American act application impacts the competition as well. So one could argue that, are they gonna think about, that's another reason to think about all those things as part of this
2: discussion. I, I think that when you consider since 1984, the enactment of the Competition Contracting Act, full and open competition has been basically like Leviticus in the procurement world. Um, when you're talking about adjusting that standard, again, should be a thoughtful process. It would be nice if, if the process involves stakeholders. Absolutely. In the community so that they uh, could understand the breadth of, of what they're doing before they report to Congress well I think as, as you mentioned Tom there's a
0: June 21st industry day and I think it probably will be the first of several industry days they have so to GSA's credit I think they're thinking about getting some industry uh, input um,
1: well I and I would also just add this is the first round right. in the authorization process yes we have a bill that's now been produced through the House of Representatives There'll be a parallel bill produced through the Senate, may or may not have these provisions in it, or they'll be in a different form if they are in it. Uh, Then we'll all have some time over the next couple of months, at least, to have conversations with the folks, the decision makers on the committees before things are reconciled and the bill becomes law. So this- A lot more to come. A lot more to come, right. Right.
0: So on on that note, let's talk a little bit- um, if you, there's a couple or one other provision you really think is interesting yeah, I, people I think, should be aware of in I the think House. that
1: people need to be aware. And, and again, it'd be interesting to see to, to what extent the Senate and their process picks this up. But there, there have been, has been an increasing concern about supply chain uh, risk, supply chain reliability, security. Uh, the, a lot of discussion in the IT and communication space with ZTE and Huawei and, and different uh, requirements that are being imposed now in the acquisition process. We saw it last year with the Kaspersky Labs uh, and cyber uh, thing. So I think that th- this is growing, I think, and, and there has been a greater concern in general about the security of sources, security of supplies. Uh, you start with that and you look at some of the, the for example, Section 7, 7, 873, in the House bill, which talks about the, you know, prohibitions on overseas purchases of certain categories of magnets and tungsten penetrators and things like that, so I think this is this is a sort of a conversation that is going to start linking up different concerns: some in the administration, some in different parts of the Congress, some maybe some in industry, uh, about uh, you know the various reliability, foreign influence, and that sort of thing on the supply chain, especially in defense um and i think this is going to be a growing a growing set of issues my understanding is that the um, the uh, committee on uh, foreign investment in the united states the reforms that that language is is probably going that's excisius like right excisius yes, language right? right that it'll be there'll be that language will be in the senate version mm-hmm. of the defense authorization bill it's not in the house so we're going to have a number of things like that i think that are sort of merging together as, as sort of a general anxiety or general concern that, that will manifest itself in all these different ways I think that's going to be a bigger factor in a lot of the conversations on acquisition and policy oh, this year and next year especially
0: right And why why now what you know this, I think it's been bubbling around for a while why, why has it sort of come to the surface it's, to use cliches? I,
1: I think in, in my opinion and Tom can certainly let us know what he thinks but I think people were a little bit surprised. At the degree to which different products are embedded in other products and the electronics and the software side of things, and I think it I think it was surprising. and I think so people are kind of reacting to that now um with with some concern because I don't don't think they understood the degree to which integration. Interconnected, yeah that, right. that these things are interconnected. And so that I think has given a new life to more traditional concerns about uh, domestic sourcing and things like that. I think this all becomes part of the same conversation in some people's minds. Bon, any thoughts? I I think
2: this has been growing over um, the last several sessions of Congress. I I think it's all interconnected with the the hacking that's gone on, the theft of IP that's gone on, um, the trade issues even. I, I think that people would do well to take a look at the floor statement of Senator Rubio when he um, introduced his Fair Trade with China Enforcement Act a couple of weeks ago. Um, it, it, it is a real bucket of ice <laughs> over the head, uh, I think, for for industry generally, maybe for the IT industry. I mean, um, he did not pull any punches expressing his concern um with uh, what he called large multinational companies that have very valuable intellectual property uh, who partner with firms that they know in in countries that they know are going to steal their intellectual property and taking a very short-run view of things. And it was an interesting uh, conclusion. He said, um, they do it because they're not bearing the total cost. The nation's bearing the total cost from a national security standpoint. And I, I think that manifests a growing frustration, anger, whatever you want to call it in Congress that you can't come to closure on how to create some mechanism for security. Other nations are demanding access. um, And uh, so you have an industry that's working in both worlds. How do we rationalize that across the globe so that uh, there's a comfort level uh, utilizing certain products? Right. Uh, without uh, fear that um, valuable intellectual property, national security information isn't going to be stolen. Right. And on that note, we have to
0: take our last break. My guests today are John Etherton, president of Etherton Associates, and Tom Sisti, chief legislative counsel for SAP. When I come back, we'll continue our discussion of the procurement policy provisions, uh, House, Senate, wherever they may come from, and what else is going on. You are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. My guests today are John Etherton, President of Etherton Associates, and Tom Sisti, Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP. And uh, we've been talking about uh, lots of provisions, what's going on on the Hill, and um Actually, I think we're going to shift a little bit, John, as opposed to continuing that conversation and talk a little bit about the department's needs and what's going on there in particular. And I know there's initiatives with regard to the speed to need or whatever. Yeah,
1: I think the, yeah, thanks, Roger. I think that one of the questions I would have in reviewing uh, both the House and Senate versions of the authorization bill is the degree to which they are responsive to some of the Current thinking in the department uh, to really provide much faster speed to capability, and I think some of that's so a little bit of that is reflected in Chairman Thornberry's initiatives on the reorganization and trying to eliminate organizations and redistribute functions. I think that there's a reflection of that.
0: Is that the idea of i like levels of review and all that? The well, work or? It,
1: I, I, it just the the fact that you're siphoning off funds uh, that the warfighter could use in order oh, okay. to you know support overhead organizations that may be duplicative or there may be you know excessive. and I, I, so I think that's part of it. The interesting thing is the department is initiating a lot of work right now to try to cut the acquisition cycle times down significantly, uh, to get things into the field more quickly, uh, to cut through the barriers on program management, things like that. Right now it doesn't look to me as if their thinking has gone to the extent of actually saying, well, because we have these legislative requirements in place, Therefore, we want to move things, uh, get rid of these legislative requirements or amend them to give us more flexibility. I think, frankly, the e-commerce portal language is a little bit of a reflection of that. I think there is the idea there that, you know, that could be more quickly administered and you would have less overhead and things like that, perhaps associated with it. The one area that's interesting, though, is there have been greater emphasis on using other transactions agreements, authority to do development and even follow on production. Uh, there was a somewhat controversial uh, attempt to use that for the uh, contract for uh, cloud services here a few months ago uh, and and whether, in fact, that needed to be reported under the rules and all that sort of thing. Congress, interestingly enough, the House la- put language in which basically clarified that follow-on production, once it reaches cer- certain thresholds, there does need to be a reporting requirement, uh, but not a whole lot of that is reflected. I, I really think that what we'll see is next year Uh, As people have had a chance to work with some of these new concepts, uh, we will see probably a number of legislative proposals coming out of the department, which will specifically focus on how to streamline the process. And if you look especially in the area of major systems acquisition, which is in the uh, uh, Chapter 144 of of, uh, Title X, there are a number of very specific requirements there on certifications and reports and other kinds of things for major programs, which if they were modified in some fashion probably would uh, speed the process up because my experience, at least what I've observed, is that in the building, and the Department of Defense, when they see these requirements, they build processes and organizations around them to basically fulfill the law. And so that if you were able to modify some of that, you might be able to continue that process. Um, Just as a general observation, I think in the major systems area, over the years, if you look at the acquisition reform efforts, going back into the 1980s, there's always been sort of three focus areas. One has been speed, one has been program performance, and the other one has been cost. And I think the challenge that the department will have, although the department has better tools now for managing, is to basically shrink the time period uh, part of it without increasing cost and and sacrificing uh, program performance to a significant degree. So I think that, but I think we'll, we'll have more of that conversation Probably in the coming year than what we're seeing now, but that is a big issue for everybody.
0: And is that Tom sort of in response to what's going on out there in terms of you know potential adversaries or whatever and their ability to deploy quickly? It's what we see potential adversaries you know churning out versus you know the, how long it takes for us to do well, it. Well,
2: I mean we've talked about this on other shows. The key component of national security is uh, the nation maintaining its technology gap above uh, potential foes. So uh, you do that by innovating and fielding uh, faster, the one who fields faster wins. That's why I think you, you may remember some of the testimony before the 809 panel talking about the monetized cost of time, trying and, and figure out all those elements that time uh, raises costs for, either cash costs, value costs, things like that, uh, performance costs. Define it as data, and then factor it into your your, your buying decision. So I think that that's very important on the OTA front. I think um, you know this this is, has the potential to be a very great tool for innovation. Has a potential to field to field products quickly. I think that's why industry had some concern um, with that um, that notorious hiccup that took place where we went from near a billion dollars down to double digit millions. Um, You almost, uh, uh, you can see there's like not a lot of planning if you can have a 92% gap in in the value of a contract overnight. Um, right, that's one where it was about 900. You mean the initial, I guess,
0: prototype was about around two to six million dollars, and then it was became a production that with a 950 million dollar ceiling, and then. They descoped it back down to like sixty-five or something,
2: right? right? Which could indicate that maybe it wasn't thought through well enough. This is—it almost uh, made me want to say, "This is why we can't have nice things." You know, um, you you want people to do the planning around this, not without judging the, the correctness of the decisions involved. There, you want there to be justification. So that the the tool can be adequately tested, because you you wind up drawing controversy around the tool before it gets a chance to work. Right.
1: Well, and I think one of the other things, especially on this follow-on production reporting question, is is a deeper sort of policy approach, which is does the discipline that a report of that nature, once you decide that this is something that you want to have done, does the discipline of having to re- prepare that report. Uh, In effect discipline the system and provide a level of governance that would not otherwise be there And I think as we look at these various requirements that Congress lays on especially for the larger procurements uh, The question really is going to be is there enough value add? uh, Because these things all will add time to the process given this rather um, I think significant uh, challenge that we have internationally where our uh, adversaries potential adversaries and competitors have access to the same commercial technology that we do
0: Right. The reports that are contemplated, I'm trying to envision what information is going to be there that is it going to be transparent or, you know, when you're doing a prototype or whatever, is everybody going to be aware that that prototype and have the opportunity to potentially, you know, provide their approach to it or... Is that report going to address the transparency piece of it, it? Or is it designed to create that transparency? I think
1: it's a little tricky because you will start a number of prototype projects where you may not even envision that there would be follow-on production even if the prototype were successful. So the question is when do you know that you have something that will then cost you know, a certain amount of money and the cost of the transaction is the way that the law reads now. Um, the House language basically treats it as a separate matter. So that you have a production item uh, that follows from one of these things when it reaches a certain threshold in value, that that then triggers the reporting requirement. And I don't think the reporting requirement itself needs to be anything under the law. It certainly isn't specified what, you know, how much detail or anything else. But it's just the fact that you would have to notify the Congress um, at some point before actually embarking on it. which I think was interpreted as not being required by DoD with respect to the other uh, this large uh, follow-on production that we saw a few months ago.
0: Okay, so we have about a minute and a half left. I want to give each of you an opportunity to just sum up where we are, and this. you know, John. I know I've heard you say many times we've been in this cycle, like a three or four-year cycle of acquisition reform uh, provisions. A lots lots of um, momentum in that in that regard. Um, so where are we now?
1: I wouldn't say we're, that this year is necessarily a pause, but it's a year that the uh, the main inputs into the process uh, have come from the 809 panel, Volume 1, at least so far. Um, and there are a number of other issues that I think in Volume 2 and 3 that we'll see. It doesn't...
0: Two come out in June. Two will be
1: out at the end of June, right. and then the plan is for three to be out at the end of December. Mm, yep. Uh, and then, then I so I think you'll have a much more robust, integrated set of recommendations that that will be available for next year's cycle. And similarly, I think with the department now just sort of staffing up in the acquisition side and you know completing the split of the undersecretary for acquisition technology and logistics into the two new undersecretary positions with those organizations. They're, we're just not in a place where the department was ready to make a number of proposals for the 19 package. I think next year we will see another very significant round as some of these issues ripen a little bit, and we'll see some of these things put okay. forward. Tom, any
2: final thoughts? Well, I just um, you know reflect on the history of, of modern acquisition reform, and one stark difference between then and now, if you will, is that we we had these sort of existential issues. At, at, way back then. We had full and open competition, leveraging commercial items, You know, really sort of foundational questions. We've had big procurement uh, bills, the you know, Title VIII's of the defense authorization bills have so been very, very comprehensive. Um, so I, I don't think that necessarily goes away. I think Title Eight will always have uh, changes. In it. But I, I'm not sure that we're looking at those types of maybe I don't know what I would call them existential, but large policy type um, acquisition standalone bills. I think you're going to see more of uh, an accommodation transactionally to to an ever changing environment, to the uh, a changing adversarial environment, trade environment, etc. Sort of like a, fi- a constant, continuous fine
0: tuning of the system, so to speak. Depending on the stakeholders, mm-hmm. is that fair Depend- to say? Yeah. yeah. Okay, guys, I want to thank my guest today, John Etherton, President of Etherton Associates, and Tom Sisty, Chief Legislative Counsel for SAP. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Off the Shelf. Only on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. and federalnewsradio.com.